Good morning. How's everyone feeling? Good. We have begun a journey. We've been walking through um, Genesis, and we're looking at the journey that God took Abram on as we go through this new series, Walking with God. We began this last week. We saw God take Abram out of a really sophisticated and comfortable life in Ur and in Haran, and he sends, he sends Abram to the gifted land, Canaan. And this is different because up until this point, we've seen the people of God driven from land, but this is the first time God is gifting land. And when Abram gets there, the land is overpopulated and it's in famine. And so Abram, like any good heavy-hearted, reasoning individual does what we all might do. In fear, he runs. And he runs to Egypt, and after fear, he sins, and he sins some more. And God sovereignly kind of steps in and redirects him right back to where God wanted him to be in the first place. Anyone ever experienced this before? What I'm talking about. And so what we learned was that God doesn't work on the basis that is bound by our own expectations or our own timeline. Things with God are often not how we expected them to be initially. Yet, how many of you have learned that God's ways are always best? Amen. And they often don't happen as quickly as we'd like them to, yet God is always timely. John, John Walton reminds, it, he, he reminds us of this by recalling this thought. He says, that, It is important for us to realize that God has no obligation to live up to our expectations of how He will work in history or in our lives. His ways are not our ways, and His plans are often obscured from our sight. When Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint began praying for the Alka Indians, it probably never occurred to them that their prayers would only be answered through the sacrifice of their own husbands' lives. Who could ever expect to pay such a price? Though God often may not do things according to our expectations, we must always be prepared to acknowledge that God's ways are the best ways. Not only do God's plans often involve difficulties that we didn't expect, they often take a long time to unfold, which leads us to Genesis 15. This morning in this passage, we are going to see an honest dialogue between Abram and the Lord. It's one where God is going to seal his promise to Abram, but it's not going to be without God giving loving instruction to Abram and allowing for Abram to share his honest concerns before him. In, in the eight times we see in Scripture God address Abram and the two have interaction, there are eight, we see them speak audibly. How many, how many of you would love to speak audibly with God? How many of you would love to be able to hear His voice as clearly as you hear mine right now? Know precisely what He wants, be able to know precisely how He's going to do it, and, and, and let Him entertain your questions as you go before and say, okay, so, so exactly what role do I play in this, Right? You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't that make life so much easier? I started to ponder this, and I, I wanted to ask you a question as I considered it. Last week, we saw that Abram at 75 had his first conversation with God that, that we know of. And he's going to have eight more over the course of the next 100 years because he dies at 175. Okay? So over a 100-year span, he has eight really short conversations with God. Interactions where he himself is not speaking much. God is speaking. And, and, and it's not, they're not long conversations. God is speaking, telling him what he wants. And at no point is Abram in control of these conversations. 
At no point is, is Abram running these conversations. At no point is this some boundless access and some arduous Q&A session between Abram and God. It's like God comes in, says what he wants, and, and leaves. Kind of drops the mic and walks out. So I wanted, I, I, I wanted us to consider this. John Walton again asked this question. I thought it was brilliant. It says, what if we were to make an offer to Abram? Which do you prefer, Abram? A brief conversation directly with God eight times in your life during which he spoke whatever was on his mind or a book that programmatically shows you what God is like and explains his plans and expectations. You see, God has given us more revelation, far more revelation and guidance than Abram ever dreamed possible. And I just like the way that Walton puts this into perspective. We have this rich and timeless gift in the scriptures, yet, can I ask you to reflect? What do you or what do I, his church, do with that? We have boundless access to this. We can go in day in and day out. There's no time limit. We have unlimited access to this book and his instructions, which explains and reveals the very character of who he is. And we also have unlimited access to him because we saw the veil torn at the crucifixion. But how many of us today go, I just want to have an audible conversation with God? By the way, the eight times that God spoke to Abram over a hundred year span, there was often, often decades of silence in between those interactions. How many of us would rather have decades of silence for eight audible conversations that were short where you were in control, you don't get to ask a lot of questions, God's leading, he's in control, drops the mic and walks away, or he gives you a book that reveals himself, his very character, who he is, and you have unlimited access to that for the rest of your life, as many days as you'd like. Just a little perspective. How many of us think Abram might go, give me the book every time? In Genesis 15, he comes to Abram in a vision, and this is the first time it's revealed that, that God speaks to Abram in a vision. Everything else is audible. So it's really fair to say seven audible conversations, one vision, and he, this chapter moves in and out of vision as it progresses. I want to start in the first chapter. I just want to read the first, uh, sorry, I want to read the first verse, stay right there, and then uh, explain as we move through it. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. His first words are, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Our first point today is this. God promises. God promises. My life verse is that he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What that means is he'll never walk away from you. He'll never break a promise to you. And the covenant between God and Abram covers several things. Number one, it's a general assurance that God's kindness and goodwill is for Abram. How many of you have ever experienced this, the kindness of God? We just sang about it. So if you sang about that and you haven't, you're a liar. <laughs> it also covers a particular declaration. It declares the purposes of his love concerning him in two ways. He's going to give him a numerous issue, and he is also going to give him the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Now, while Canaan has been warred over for centuries now, remember what he was given in Genesis 12. When he walks in, the place is in famine and it's overpopulated. So it seems like not much of a gift, okay? But, but we've recognized that it would be flowing with milk and honey. 
Well, we'll get into it, but I'll give you a little preview. The reason is because the promise that God gave Abram wasn't even for him. It was for the generations to come after. His great, 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 great grandchildren were going to benefit from the land. Hey, what if, what if the journey you're on with God had little to do with you and more about your legacy? What if the journey you were on with God and your faithfulness to walk with God right now through wild uncertainty and to be led to places that you don't know, and when you get there, the expectations aren't what you thought, even though your expectations probably weren't fair because this is a new, new place? Hey, listen, what if your ability to trust God and walk with Him and trust His promises is less about you and more about your kids? What if it's less about you and more about your grandkids? God begins with these words, be not afraid. It's pretty spot on given Abram's response and fear in running to Egypt last time we spoke, last week. Because where there's great faith, 2 Corinthians 7 reminds us there's always opportunity for much fear. Does anyone here chronically worry? I was reminded this week of just how much a part of this persona it is for me to chronically struggle with anxiety. And the reality is, anxiety can sit on you pretty heavy. And it can steal from you. But remember who, who kind of brings anxiety. We bring it out upon ourselves, but the enemy knows, the father of all lies, knows precisely how heavy that can sit on us and how to twist it. And so I, I want to say, like, it's, please be clear. There is no one who needs today's message more so than me. Someone asked me this week, how are we feeling? What, what's the message going to be like today? I said, well, hopefully it'll be great. And I have a feeling God wants to say something to our people that he really wants us all to hear because I've been continually hit this week with distractions that led to anxiety. So I want you to know that this morning's probably more for me than by me. And Wearsby commented, and I loved what he said. He says, as you are approaching places of anxiety, remember the fear not statements that were given to us in Isaiah. If you're taking notes, write these down. They're very important. Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.13-14. 14. Isaiah 43.1. Isaiah 43.5. Isaiah 44.2-8. These are verses that I was reminded of this week that we can go to always to recognize and remember that God has never been and will never be a liar. And we need to remember that when God promises, we cannot impose on God, listen, the brokenness of those around us. How many of you have been lied to or let down by other people in your life? How many have ever had a promise broken to you before? We have to stop imposing on God where people failed us. Okay? And we're going to get into it. We're going to see Abram dialogue with this. God knew Abram's soul and encouraged him not to fear. He responds by saying something about who he was. He seeks to remind Abram, though you're anxious and I know who you are, I need you to remember who I am. I am your shield. Meaning, God's I am is perfectly adequate for man's I am not. Let me say that one again. 
Throughout Scripture, we see God reveal Himself as I am. It's just the heart of who His character is, it's who He is as a person. And God's I am is perfectly adequate to cover the holes left by, by man's I am not, even your own failures. Just because you or the people around you may not be so trustworthy, maybe they're broken themselves, God came to correct all that and the, the person of who God is His very character fills in the holes that we leave because we're a product of a sinful place and world. Hello? I thought that was a pretty good point. (laughs) Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Your life is only as big as your faith, and your faith is only as big as your God. If you spend all your time simply looking at yourself, you'll get discouraged. But if you look to God with faith, we have every opportunity. It's immense to be encouraged. Our Almighty God is the only one who can offer you and I protection and provision to keep His promises. Psalm 84 says this, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withheld from anyone who walks uprightly. Like we examined last week, God is trying to teach us all that He is our destination. I am your destination. My very presence and protection will be your defense. The consideration of this is that God Himself will be a shield to His people to secure them from all destructive evils, a shield ready for them and to ready around them so that they, so He can sufficiently silence all the perplexing and tormenting fears that the world throws at us or, listen, that well up within us that we bring upon ourselves. Anyone ever caused yourself to be fearful? So, he says, I will be your shield and I will also be your, uh, your reward is great. And now I want you in your minds to imagine just a bus coming to a screeching halt because this is the place where you see Abram start to kick in, okay? So it's like, er, hold on, wait, great reward. I have a barren wife, and you said, who's old, who you said, fruit, you're going to open her womb, numerous, so much that they can't be counted descendants, and a land that is barren and overpopulated with a people that could kill me. How's that going to work? Okay, so I hear what you're saying, but how is all of this going to become a reality? Matthew Henry breaks it down like this. He says, with great affliction that sat upon Abram in one way, he was childless. See, there are two questions that are beckoned from Abram's life, and we're going to examine both, but we got to look at the first in his response to the promise of God. And we got to evaluate how much we respond in the same way. He was heavy because he was without a child, and it expounds itself in four ways. It's fourfold. He has no child, but yet he's surrounded by friends and servants who do. His servant would likely be his heir. Abram was never likely to have a child himself. And that want of a son was so greatly troubling on him that it took away the comforts and all of all his, his enjoyments. It was his anxiety and his circumstances, what was directly in front of him, what he could reason, what was logical, was actually stealing opportunity. So he asked this question, Lord, what can you give me? Basically, what he's saying is, 
all of what you've said means nothing if you don't give me a son. Let me read what he says to the response of God's promise. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said in verse 2, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless? And my heir is a leaser of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring except to a slave born in my house to be my heir. Now, that word slave is actually, again, servant, someone living in the house. And this is not uncommon. This is the way this would work. If a man like Abram, who had a great inheritance to pass on, had no son, what would happen was the, the chief, or chief of staff in the house, his number right-hand command, his son, if he had a child, would be adopted by Abram and he would re- he'd receive all the inheritance. So when it says, one of my house... He's talking about one adopted, not by blood. Now, this is not to slam the women, but ladies, the inheritance was for the son. So if he had a daughter, it still would have been an adoption process. It would have adopted an heir so the name could continue. And Eliezer is the son of the chief of staff. And so as he's asking um, God, okay, I, I hear your promise, but... It's heavy upon me that I myself don't have a son. I'm not sure how that's going to take place. Circumstantially, this doesn't add up. So as best I can reckon, Eliezer is about to become my heir. So do I need to start the adoption process? And the Lord spoke. Now the word word of the Lord came to him, verse 4. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky, count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be this numerous. So our second point today, God promises, but Abram questions. And we can't really fault him. He's just looking around at everything that's in front of him and logically saying none of this adds up. It doesn't make sense. The math's not seeming to work. How many of you have ever had this dialogue with the Lord? Whether in your own mind or or with others. Abram wasn't just concerned with himself and his wife. He's concerned with how God is going to work out his plan of salvation for the whole world because there's a lot in the promise that he just gave. God has this glorious plan and God has made a gracious promise, but here's what Abram is trying to say out loud. God, you seemingly are doing nothing. How many of you have ever had a conversation with God where you said, you promised this, but it doesn't seem like that's ever going to be? God, if you're not a liar and you've made a promise that doesn't add up to the sum of my circumstances, when are you going to do something about it? Hello? Maybe that's just me. But I've had this conversation, and let me tell you, it's hurt. It's hard. Abram and Sarah are getting older. They're running out of time. And one of the basic things that we have to learn in our faith, one of the basic lessons we have to follow when walking with God, even though it doesn't make sense, and even though God's okay to allow you to go through the emotion. And the, the, the reasoning, he's okay with you to bring your honest concerns to him. He says, cast your anxieties upon me because I love you. I don't want you to wrestle with those. I don't want your fear to cripple you any longer. But how many of us are more likely to take our fear to someone else than we are to him? Because we want that audible voice 
responding to us going, yeah, I totally understand. I get it. I feel it. And we would love to have that, that audible conversation. We'd love to be able to trust the promise. And we want to hear immediately from others, but we have complete access to His Word at all times. You see, one of those basic lessons of faith we have to learn is to not be crippled by our fear, but we have to trust that God's will must be fulfilled in God's way. Even though your circumstances don't logically add up, God must do it the way God planned because He is God. And when your name is I Am, that's okay. You have the right to be the most self-centered person on the planet. You are God. And so God's will must be carried out in God's way and in God's time. How many of you have been a little bit impatient at times as God's bringing things into fruition. But how many of you have also learned that God is always on time? See, God never expected Abram or Sarai to figure out how he would get an heir. Let me say that again. God didn't ask Abram for help. God was not asking Abram or Sarai to figure out how he would give them an heir. He just wanted them to be available. What Abram and Sarah did not realize was that God was waiting for them to be listened. He says that, you know, I'm not sure. Time's running out. She's barren. How's this going to happen? God goes, I want you to be as good as dead so that I can do this. I want you to trust your circumstances like nothing I want it to come to zero within you. I want you to look so barren, so dry, so old that when I bring fruit from that womb, people will point to me because I'm the most self-centered person on the planet. Hello? You were made to worship me, not the other way around. And we need to stop trying to grave in God in our image and make God... Santa Claus for us. It's okay for us to question. I would say that it is not necessarily be interpreted that Abram is asking in fear about this. I think there's a difference between fear and just being heavy because of your circumstances being bleak. I think he's asking with a heaviness. If it wasn't permissible, I don't think God would have allowed it. So God allows us questions because they're in a relationship. They're dialoguing like two people in conversation. Abram is simply reasoning how God will bring this promise to be. And it's using his best attempt at logic and his present circumstances. Here's, here's what I love. Either an estate without an heir or an heir without an estate would have been half that comfort to Abram. But God ensures both. And he answers him graciously. There's a truth that we need to allow ourselves to get to. God gave an express promise of a son. I don't know what God has promised you, but I know this. That if we allow ourselves to respond like Abram does here, in fear that no child at all means God can't do what God said he'll do, We just took God's job from him. Does God need your help? Okay, so God didn't need Abram to figure out how he would have an heir. He just promised he'd have an heir. 
So Abram's fear or heaviness that he didn't have an heir presently and he wasn't sure how the circumstances were going to add up didn't stop God from being God. The people of God just need to come to a place where we go, I cannot see how this will ever happen. So I am surrendering completely to you. There's no way it's going to happen. If you're going to keep your promises, I can't help you with it. You just got to keep your promises. This is a place where God can begin to work. Hello? It says in verse 6 right here. He took him outside, verse 5, he took him outside, look at the sky, count the stars. He says, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be this numerous. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Point three, even though another question is coming, the questions change. Abram believed. He trusted. This word should be interpreted that he leaned on him with his complete weight. The Hebrew word translated here, believed, meant that he leaned with his whole weight upon this truth. Because he knew that he had at the end of himself. His circumstances were not going to allow him any room to help God here. And they were so bleak that the only person who could answer right here was going to be God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust not in your own understanding. Lean not on your own ability to reason, but trust completely in him. And what? God will bring it to pass. Proverbs 12 says that anxiety can be heavy, but a good word, this is where the church comes in, a good word can lift someone's spirits. Hebrews 12 says, place your eyes firmly upon Jesus, your goal, and do not remove your eyes. Let him bring that to pass. Abram believes in the, listen, promises are only, only as good as those that believe and act on them. Promises do us no good unless we believe and act. Abram had already trusted God's promise. In Hebrews 12, last week, we saw him leave comfort to walk out of the great unknown. He proved that by leaving home to follow God to Canaan. But Genesis 15, 6 is a reference to Abram's faith. In the movie Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams' character challenges his students to break out of a worldview that places them to live a life only within the confines of what others or themselves have placed them in. Listen, how many of us live within the confines of reason alone and we are actually imposing on God, we're trying to place God in a natural box when He's always been supernatural. We're trying to place God confined and, and then come to this altar and worship Him. But that's not the God we serve. This is a God not bound by time. This is not a God bound by our earthly or natural circumstances. This is not a God bound by our reason or our expectations. This is simply God. And, and, and we, C.S. Lewis says this, speaking about submission to God and trusting Him wholly sounds like this. When God talks to, to people about losing themselves, He means only abandoning their clamor of self-will. Once they've done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts about who they are wholly because they'll be more themselves at that point than they ever were before. How many of you have ever struggled? You say, I want to trust God, but if I do, I'm going to give up a bit of myself. If I, I, I want to trust God, but that means that I'll give up a little bit of my identity. What C.S. Lewis is saying is like, look, you're not really you. 
What you're showing the world is someone who can reason about the circumstances that are right before him. But the you that's really you exceeds those circumstances in that ability to trust a God who's supernatural, who's already defeated the grave and already defeated the fear that's keeping you crippled. So he's going to give you back everything he intended for you from the beginning. If you'll just trust him and lean on him wholly, believe in him the way that Abram believes here. God promises Abram the land of Canaan for an inheritance. God never promises more than he is able to perform, as men often do. So we have to stop putting on God what men have done to us. Abram desired a sign. And this sign was more about strengthening and confirming than it was about fear. So God directs Abram to prepare a sacrifice. And we're going to read about it. Point four. God confirms. He says in verse 8, Lord, how can I know that I'll possess it? He said, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, laid them in pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. For 400 years in the land that does not belong to them, your men, your kinsmen, will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go out... To your father's house in peace and be buried a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, and the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. So, when the sun was set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made his covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring. Point four God himself confirms. God confirms. Here's what God does. He, falls a, he causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram at night, and he asks him to prepare an offering. This is called a blood covenant, and it was often practiced in this day. You take the animals that were prepared, you cut them, play them place them on the land, and, and you like let the bloody ends face one another. The two parties, because two parties are required in a covenant, would pass through them together arm in arm, and that was to seal the covenant. So all that Abram is asked to do is prepare the covenant. And then God reveals to him that there's some things that are going to happen. You're going to die and never see this land. You'll just die an old man in, in your bed. It's going to be great. But in 400 years, your, your people, the descendants that I'm giving you, from the loins of the wife who's barren, the fruit is going to come forth. She's going to, they're going to be enslaved. But then comes the promise. The, he, he lists in a few ways. They're going to be strangers in a land, Egypt, the place you ran last week. They'll be servants. They're going to suffer. Their suffering will continue for 400 years. And their enemies, the Egyptians, will be judged for their sins. And then finally, the Israelites will be delivered. And in two ways, they'll be enlarged and they'll be enriched. God makes a promise to Abram. And he tells him how it's going to happen. This is the part that I wish that I would get with God all the time. Okay? It's probably kind of difficult 
to learn that you were taken out of a place that was so sophisticated and, and, and had indoor plumbing and so comfortable where you were a rich man and, you know, people liked you, to go to places in famine and it's one day going to flow with milk and honey, but you will never get to see that. You got to, prom- you got to have the promise of a barren land being for your descendants and the promise of descendants coming from your barren wife, but you, you never really get to see that. This is what I mean by the faith of us is probably more for our kids than anything else. Are we faithful to walk even when we're unsure? God, God ratifies and asks him to cut this covenant and move through it. But here's the point. God, God shows up himself to show that he doesn't need Abram on the other side of this covenant. It takes two people... And there's two symbols given to represent the presence of God. The, the burning lamp, the smoking pot. We know in the Exodus we saw the smoke cover Mount Sinai, the presence of God. We've seen God show up in the burning bush, show up as light. So he shows up and says, I myself and I alone will keep this covenant. I've almost promised it. I've already promised it to you. All I ask is for you to be willing to prepare it and trust me. Fight off the birds of prey who are about to steal my covenant promise from you. Fight it off. Just be available. And now let me do what I do. Let me walk through it. Let me walk through, show myself in two different ways so that you know that it's honest, that you know it's sealed. And here's, here's how much it's sealed. It is as certain today as it is in 400 years when your people will be brought back to this place and inherit the promised land that I'm giving you. They could have it today. It's as certain right now as then, but they have to go through some stuff. They're going to have to learn how to walk with me as well, Abram. They're going to have to go through some stuff. Life isn't like this. Life is often like this. So they're going to need to go through the valley before they'll know how to receive the gift that I've given them. Just like you had to leave comfort and walk into the barren so that I could promise you fruit. Hello? So God promises, Abram questions, Abram believes wholeheartedly, and then God himself confirms. It beckons a few questions. I have one last quote. I'm sorry, not a quote. I just want to ask this question. How often are we imposing on God man's failures? Or your failures. This passage that we're looking at today reminds us that this charter is sealed and that in a walk with God, there's truly a, a fear versus faith decision that has to be made by all of us. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says that his ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. So what he's reminding us as Isaiah puts it down is that God has never dealt or been confined by this, the, the confines or the reason of this broken world. He works outside of it. That's how he was able to defeat it by the grave. And that's actually, that's actually what he formed for us. The blood covenant we just read about, which is kind of gross with the prepared animals, is actually what he did for us on the cross. There always took a human sacrifice in order for God to atone. And in God redeeming all of us on the cross through Jesus, it took the sacrifice of the purest individual and the purest, the purest offering God could give 
in and of himself, his only begotten son. And that blood covenant was made for you and I. That promise was sealed. And it's as certain as the day that we trust it to the day of our redemption. But we have to abide and walk with God in it. So, how often are we imposing on God men's failures, our failures? How often are we calling God a liar? But God has already promised and delivered. See, with every time we do this, we imply, we imply a lack of trust in God. And my question this morning that I want to leave each of us with as the band is coming back is this. Can you trust God to keep what he's promised? Can you trust God to keep what he's promised despite your circumstances and the lack of them adding up? Can you trust God despite your inability to see how it's going to come to fruition and just trust that God is God? Let me ask this question so that I, I can assure all of us that we can answer these questions. How many of you have seen God do something in your life that you yourself can take no credit for in the past? Raise your hand nice and high. You can answer this question right now. If God is, was, and will be, then we can trust that God is that same God today in your circumstances, even if they don't add up right now. So what we're going to do is this. The band is going to sing right now over us as a prayer. And that prayer is your freedom and opportunity to listen to the words that they are singing and to contemplate all that we've discussed. I want you to think on how much you're allowing your life to be crippled by fear or how much you're allowing your life to be halted because the circumstances just don't seem to add up. And I want you to sit and think on it first. But then out of that contemplation and out of the declaration that God is God and I am not and God's not a liar and I trust his promises and I lean wholly on those, then and only then do I want you to move from your seat and come to his altar. Come to his table where the the covenant was made and celebrate the blood that atoned for you when we didn't deserve it. He sent his son to pay so that we wouldn't have to. He sent his son to die so that we could live. Maybe today there's some families who find themselves at the altar and going, you know what, I have not lived as if I wholly lean upon him and trust him. I'm still trying to reason it all out. Will you forgive me? Maybe there's some friends that go, you know what, things have gone a little south for us and it's because I wasn't trusting him, but I'm repenting of that today. Will you forgive me? I want us to reflect on exactly how God wants you to respond today, and I want you to listen as a prayer over our lives, the truth of whom God is, and then as a people, let's not be disobedient. Let's respond. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. In the next few moments, we just ask that you have your way. Please come and do a work in our lives by the power of your presence. We ask your spirit be here. And you do what only you can do. We're available, we're ready, but we trust the God who doesn't need us to keep his promises. In Jesus' name, amen.